guess it was about 10 days ago that we had Halloween, right? Trick-or-treating. Anyone go trick-or-treating? I know you got your hands up for, uh, but yeah. Trick-or-treating, right? That, that's kind of the epic event that happens on Halloween. It's what kids look forward to all year long, maybe more than Christmas. They love dressing up on Halloween and going out and going door-to-door and getting candy. And, but as we were out this year, you know, I was kind of observing how things and taking some observations on how the trick-or-treating went. And uh, I wanted to share them with you this morning because uh, I, I noticed some things that I think may, may uh, pay off for us as we talk about Luke chapter 7. But first thing I noticed is that there are five kinds of houses. There's five kinds of houses when you take your kids trick-or-treating. You know, you're going to know what I'm talking about when, whenever I get into this. But there, are, uh, there might be more than this, but these are kind of the five general categories of houses for trick-or-treating. There's the, uh, the first house, which I'm calling the get-what-you-get-and-don't-throw-a-fit house, right? Where, where I choose for you, and you have to be okay with it because, after all, I'm giving it to you for free. So, so that's the first kind of house, and you know what I'm talking about. They, they take the piece of candy out of their bowl, and they put it into the basket of whoever's asking for candy when they say trick-or-treat. Then there's the second kind of house, which is the take-as-much-as-you-want house. There aren't very many of these, but there are some. But maybe the motivation behind this isn't as generous as it feels, because to me it seems like the motivation might possibly be the sooner that I run out of candy, the sooner I can turn off my lights. So please take as much as you want. The third type of house is what I call the corrective house. It's where you choose, but I'm going to be standing over you as you choose, and you can only take one, no, just one, only one. You can't have more than one, and so you get to take one out, but you're going to be corrected all along the way if you try to grab more than one treat out of the basket. So, so that's the third house. The fourth house is what I call the integrity test house. It's the one where they put the bowl of candy out with a sign that says, please take one. And how many times would you love to have a camera on that bowl of candy to see how often kids follow the rules on the sign? And the last one is what I'm calling, just for fun, the Bengals house. Like the Cincinnati Bengals, the football team that I'm I'm trying to not root for anymore. It's the house where um, the lights are on, it looks promising, but you know you're only going to be disappointed because nobody's home. That's the Bingo's house. So where the lights are on, and, and, and you're, you're hopeful because all the lights are on, and you go up and knock on the door, and you knock on the door, and you knock on the door, but nobody's home. So five different houses that, that kind of set the example for how we do trick-or-treating. But inevitably, if you've been out trick-or-treating in a neighborhood where there are a lot, of, a lot of kids walking around, especially younger kids, you have probably heard what we've all probably heard. At some point around the loop, you hear that one kid. You know, the one kid that, that's too young to grasp the whole concept. And sooner or later, when they don't get the piece of candy that they wanted, you hear them throughout the whole neighborhood express their opinion about the situation, right? If, if they're old enough to speak, they might let out some words or phrases about their frustration, but if they're not, they may just let out a scream as their parent is pulling them away from the bucket of candy that they're not allowed to have all of. 
But I was thinking about this. I was thinking about, about trick-or-treating, and I think there's a reason that we have this problem. I think there's, I think there's a reason why we just kind of have developed the, the sense where we can just take as much as we want. And the reason, I think, is that we have too many treats and not enough tricks. Right? I mean, nobody's giving out rocks anymore. You know, like Charlie Brown, you know what I'm talking about, where, where he goes out in every house, he gets a rock. I got a rock. I got a rock. Nobody's giving out rocks anymore. There, there are too many, too many houses just giving out treats, and nobody's giving out tricks. You know, and I think if people gave out some rocks that were wrapped in candy wrappers, you know, then, then, then kids might be trained that sometimes in life you get candy, sometimes in life you get rocks. And we really haven't tapped into our creativity here when it comes to what we could possibly be doing with the tricks. I mean, rocks is just the beginning, right? We, we could give out things like empty tape dispensers. Kids love tape, so, so give them an empty tape dispenser. Our kids always use our tape, and that's what we find on Christmas when we go to wrap presents is the empty tape dispensers. We could give out cups with holes in the bottom. It looks like a cup, but it's not really a cup. You know, we, we could really tap into some creativity. As someone says, someone texted in, if you wrapped rocks, uh, wrapped, wrapped rocks as candy, you might get a few broken teeth. Well, we've got some lessons we need to learn. <laughs> There's a lot of things we could do as tricks. You know, the possibilities are endless. We could give out Cincinnati Bengals fan gear. That would be a great trick to give to kids. I mean, that's a lifelong trick that just keeps on giving year after year. But I think maybe, maybe, could this not be at least partially to blame for why we live in a generation, why we live in a time where everyone is offended about everything and nobody can express any kind of contrary opinion is because everybody always gets treats, nobody ever gets tricks. Well, looking in Luke chapter 7, verse 24, and going through the next uh, 12 verses or so, we're going to actually look exactly at this situation. We're going to look at Jesus, who is talking about a contrast between kids who are spoiled and, and probably what a lot of us would call petulant little children, and, and then wisdom's children. It's a contrast between two looks at children, but he's not talking about little kids. He's talking about us as his followers. So John chapter 7, verse 24 Remember, we talked last week about John's messengers and how John was in prison and, in prison and he was wondering if Jesus was really the one or if they should look for someone else. And so he sent his messengers to ask Jesus that question. We spent a lot of time last week talking about that. Well, after John's messengers left, Jesus then turned and began to speak to the crowd about John the Baptist. And he says, what did you go out into the wilderness to see? A reed swayed by the wind? If not, what, what did you go out to see? A, a man dressed in fine clothes? No, th those who wear expensive clothes and indulge in luxury are in, are in palaces. But what did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I tell you, and, and more than a prophet. This is the one about whom it is written, I will send my messenger ahead of you and will prepare your way before you. 
And then Jesus says, I tell you, among those born of women, there is no one greater than John. Yet the one who is the least in the kingdom of God is greater than he. And then some of Luke's commentary. He says, all the people, even the tax collectors, when they heard Jesus' words, acknowledged that God's way was right because they had been baptized by John. But the Pharisees and the experts in the law rejected God's purpose for themselves because they had not been baptized by John. And Jesus went on to say, To what then can I compare the people of this generation? What are they like? They're like children sitting in the marketplace and calling out to each other, We played the pipe for you, and you did not dance. We sang a dirge, and you did not cry. For John the, Pap John the Baptist came neither eating bread nor drink drinking wine, and you say he has a demon. The Son of Man came eating and drinking, and, and you say he's a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors. But wisdom is proved right by all her children. So Luke is trying to, to fit a whole lot of material into, even though it feels like a lot of verses, into a fairly condensed version of the story. And so, so there are a lot of things that we can expound on in this text. And so if you will, I, I just ask if you'll allow me to, to kind of break through, break down the passage as quickly as I can, and then we're going to focus in on this idea of the spoiled children and wisdom's children. First, I want to look at that phrase, among those born of women, there is no one greater than John. Among those born of women, there's no one greater than John. That is a significant statement. This means that according to Jesus, John the Baptist is the greatest man that ever lived. According to Jesus and Jesus' evaluation of the situation, John the Baptist is the greatest man that ever lived. But then he makes this statement that says that yet the one who is the least in the kingdom of God is greater than he. Well, what does that mean? Well, it means that John was a great man, but by Jesus' standards, John was the greatest man that ever lived, but the world's standards of greatness are quite contrary to Jesus. The way the world evaluates things is not the same as Jesus evaluates things. So when he looks at John's life and the role that he played in preparing the way, he sees something different in him being the greatest man that ever lived. But we also see by this statement that the, the, the one who is the least in the kingdom of God is greater than even the greatest man that ever lived. See, there's a difference. Jesus is saying there's a difference between your temporary earthly calling, and your eternal spiritual reality. There's a difference between, between what's happening in you right now and your situation here on earth. There's a difference between the right now and what is going to last for all of eternity. And in the right now, John the Baptist is the greatest man who has ever lived, but, but in the kingdom of God, there's a lot more. It's the promise and the fulfillment of the promise, the expectation. So John is the greatest born among women. And then there's this, there's this phrase about, about, what did you all go out into the wilderness to see? And then he uses some, 
some uh, phrase there. He says, um, what, did you go all, uh, what did you all go out to see? A reed swayed by the wind? Or, or a man dressed in fine clothes? Or what did you go out to see? Well, this first phrase, as, as, uh, as unpopular as it may seem, it's, it's an expression that is, that, that is used of men calling them soft, sometimes even used of, of male prostitutes. So, so Jesus is saying, is that what you went out to see? Is that what you went out to see? Uh, a soft message and a soft guy? Well, no, that's not what they went out to see. Was it, was it, was it a fluffy message that was lighthearted and, and it was just easy to swallow? Is that, is that what you went out to see? No, did you see somebody that was dressed in fine clothes as though they were royalty? No, that's not what you went out to see. What you saw was a prophet and you saw someone who was doing something specific. What they were doing was preparing the way, John was preparing the way for somebody else. So Jesus is looking at John the Baptist and reminding those who are all there uh, listening to Jesus' words, who, who had participated in the ministry of John the Baptist, had been baptized and repented and turned away from those things. He's reminding them why they went out, and he's pointing out that that's not where everything ends. It didn't end with being baptized by John, by John that was preparing the way for something else. But here we have now a contrast between two types of children. There, there are, are the children who most of Jesus' text deals with, the ones who rejected God's purpose for themselves. And Jesus goes on to explain these little children. And then at the very end, he gives this other contrasting phrase, but wisdom is proved right by all her children. There's this little song that, that's here in, in verse 32. It says, um, we played the pipe for you and you did not dance, and we sang a dirge and you did not cry. This would, this would probably be referring to, you know, kids who are gathered around in the public square, you know, out where, where people gather around and play things and do things. This would be in the public square where things tend to happen the most where, like we saw a few weeks ago when Rob was teaching how, how they were bringing out the man in the funeral processional on the beer or the buyer, and so that would have happened through the public square. So funerals would have come through the public square, as well as weddings and parts of weddings would have happened. There would have been processionals and things that happened that came through the public square. And so, so he's saying, we played the pipe for you and you did not dance, as though we played the pipe in, in, in a wedding song. And, and you, little children who are there, seeing what's happening and, and wanting to play along with what the grown-ups are doing, you're sitting there seeing the grown-ups in the wedding and you're just refusing to participate. And then he says... We sang a dirge, and you did not cry. We, 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 you wanted to play the funeral, and you didn't pretend to be sad. You know, you did not join in in what we were doing. You, you didn't join in in what was taking place. So this is his way as a rabbi, as a teacher, of using an allegory or an illustration to talk about what was going on. 
So when he says that phrase, to what shall I compare this generation, you're going to hear a comparison, and so you're going to hear a metaphor. You're going to hear an illustration about what he's comparing this generation. And what this boils down to is that Jesus is comparing this generation, the Pharisees and the experts in the law who rejected God's purpose for themselves, to spoiled little children who refused to be satisfied. They loved themselves, they loved their own righteousness, and they hated mercy and grace. Their whole religious system was, was based on how they performed. And, and then Jesus comes along and says, it's not about how you perform, it's about me. So it's a funeral and a wedding. And this is also greatly illustrative. John came playing the funeral. John came playing the funeral song. He came playing the dirge, right? He came playing the repentance song and, and, and talked about being baptized for repentance. And how did the people respond to John's song? How did people respond to the song that John the Baptist played? Well, they said that he has a demon. But then Jesus came playing the wedding song. Jesus came playing the song that celebrated the wedding. And what did they say about Jesus? That, well, he's eating and drinking. He's a glutton and a drunkard and a friend of tax collectors and sinners. What he's saying is, is, that, is that those who have heard both the wedding song and the funeral song have rejected both Jesus and John's ministry. And it's not because of style, but it's because of content. If it was because of style, well, then you would think there would be some who were drawn to the style of John the Baptist's ministry and the style of Jesus' ministry, but, but that was not the case when it came to the Pharisees and the experts in the law. They ignored them both. We played the pipe for you and you did not dance. We sang a dirge and you did not cry. So here Jesus is making, and Luke is pointing out, the contrast between two types of children. There's, there's the spoiled children, and then there's wisdom's children. There's the spoiled children who are the spoiled brats who are never satisfied with anything, and they have rejected God's purpose for themselves. And then there are wisdom's children, and we'll get into that in a little bit. But I want to ask us, because this is in here for a reason. It's not just to talk about Jesus and people who accepted and rejected Jesus. That is the point. But there are other things we can learn here. How do we respond to Jesus' message? How have we responded to Jesus' message? Are we responding like wisdom's children or like spoiled children? Are we, are we responding like, like those who just accept what has been given to us because the giver is the one who knows what to give? Or, or are we responding like, I wanted that one. I didn't want a Tootsie Roll. I wanted a Milky Way. How are we responding? Well, let's look at, at spoiled children for just a little bit. Don't worry, we're not going to be condemning anybody's parenting styles or anything like that. We're, we're talking about in the context of, of the passage this morning. So you can relax, take a breath. But just in general, spoiled children are those who get everything they want but are never happy. 
They get everything they want, but they're never happy. You know, we want what we want, but it can only be how we think the thing we want should be, should be. And if, and if what we think we want, it ends up being different than what we thought it was going to be, well then, how do we respond? We, we throw a fit, right? Because we didn't get our way. We didn't get what we wanted. And so John the Baptist comes, and, and, and Jesus is saying that, that, well, apparently, John the Baptist was just too weird for you. John the Baptist was just too different. He was too out there. I mean, the guy wore camel hair for clothing, and he ate honeys and locusts. I mean, he was, he was gluten-free before gluten-free was a cool thing, you know? It's like he was out there living this radical, weird, crazy lifestyle. And so we're like, uh, yeah. <laughs> I'm not following that guy. I mean, he's just too out there. It's just a little too extreme, a little too radical. And Jesus comes along, and well, Jesus comes along, but uh, he's the Messiah, right? I mean, he's he's the Messiah, or at least that's what everyone's saying, or that's what what's believed about a lot of people by a lot of people that that he's the Messiah, but. But John was too weird, but Jesus, well, he's just not weird enough, right? I mean, I mean he's just a little too normal. I mean, he, he eats and drinks wine with tax collectors and sinners. I mean, the Messiah wouldn't do that. I mean, the Messiah wouldn't spend time with the unrighteous heathens. So John's too weird, and Jesus isn't weird enough, and we're just not going to be happy. We're not going to follow either guy. They knew that Jesus was the Messiah, but he wasn't the Messiah they wanted. And I'm sure we're never guilty of that. Right, I mean, we, we never reject God because he's not being God like we wanted God to be God. We, we never do that, do we? I mean, we never say, if you were God, you would do this or that or give me this or that, and if you were God, you would do it, and if you don't do it, then you must not be God. We, we, I'm sure we, we never say those sorts of statements. I'll confess to you that I, I have prayed God, show me that you're God by doing X, Y, Z. God, show me that you're God by doing X, Y, Z. If you, if you just show me this, if you do this, then, then I'll know that you are God and then I'll follow you. I just need you to do X, Y, Z. Which is essentially, if you look at it, if you boil it down to its... its Core, it's God, show me that you're God by letting me be God and order God around. Like God, 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 show me that you're God by letting me be God and tell God what to do, and then you do what I want to do, and that's how I know that you're God. We want God to give us what we want, and we want it now. 
at the same time. We don't just want God to give us things. We don't just want God to, to bless us and, and have the expectation that, that, that when we come into our relationship with God that everything is going to be magically shifted into order and now everything about my life is going to be perfect because I have now believed in God, so God is going to make my life what I always wanted it to be. You know, we have that belief, but we also have the same belief that that, well, God, God, if you really love me, if you are who you say you are, then you're going to take away all of the stuff that I don't want to be in my life, too. If you're, if you're really God, not only would you give me what I want, but you would keep me from experiencing all the things that I don't like. If you're really God, you will, you will keep me from going through difficult circumstances. And if you love me, you wouldn't make me do it because I don't like it. It's like, I'm not saying this ever happens in our house. I've never heard these exact words, but it's the same idea that, if, you know, as a parent and a child and the child talking back to the parent would say, if you love me, you wouldn't make me do my chores. Right? If you love me, you wouldn't make me do the things that I don't want to do. Or if you love me, you wouldn't make me take this nasty tasting medicine. No, you're sick. You're sick and you need this medicine because if you don't take it, this infection is going to you know, wreak havoc on your body and you might even die. And even though it tastes awful, it tastes like the worst thing you'll ever put into your mouth, I need you to know that I'm giving it to you to save you. But, but we say, if you love me, you wouldn't make me take it. Of course, we don't have to worry about that either because all the medicines for kids now taste like strawberries and cherries and grapes. So, But we don't want to go through difficult circumstances and situations, and we think if God really loved us, he wouldn't make us do it. We think he would rescue us out. He would pull us out of the difficulty. What we fail to realize is that times of pain, confusion, and sorrow, these times are the anvil on which God teaches us to love him for himself and not for the good gifts he gives us. The times when things aren't going the way we want them to go, the times when our life does not look like we thought it should look like by now, the the time when we are going through trials and difficult circumstances, the times when we are struggling under the weight of it all, It's it's not a time that shows us that God doesn't love us. Instead, it is the anvil on which God teaches us to love him for who he is and not love the gifts more than we love the giver. A good example of this is Job. Job chapter 1, verse 18 We start already way into the story. The the phrase here says, While he was still speaking, the he that was still speaking was a messenger that had come to tell Job about all of the bad things that had happened to his flock and to his herds and all of his possessions and how they had been destroyed in in the various ways. And while this messenger is still speaking, yet another messenger came and said, your sons and daughters were feasting and drinking wine at the oldest brother's house when suddenly a mighty wind swept in from the desert and struck the four corners of the house. It collapsed on them and, and they're dead. And I'm the only one who's escaped to be able to tell you. 
At this, Job got up and tore his robe and shaved his head. He was mourning. He then fell to the ground in worship and said, Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked I will depart. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. May the name of the Lord be praised. In all this, Job did not sin by charging God with wrongdoing. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. May the name of the Lord be praised. See, the followers that God is looking for are those despite circumstance, whether it is success or pain, whether it is good times or bad. What what God is looking for is children who will, in the midst of it all and in, in all situations, be able to come and fall to the ground and worship and say, the Lord has given, the Lord has taken away, may the name of the Lord be praised. These, these are wisdom's children. This is what it looks like to follow God. You're probably familiar with the movie The Matrix. It's a fairly old movie now, although it doesn't seem that old to me, but I know that it's now like 20 years old or something. But, but there's this scene in here um, uh, that's a, kind of a, a, a poignant scene where, where Morpheus is offering two pills to Neo. Anyone seen that? Anyone know what we're talking about? So we've got a quote I want to put up here. And it says, uh, you take the blue pill, the story ends. You wake up in your bed and believe whatever you want to believe. If you take the red pill, you stay in Wonderland, and I show you how deep the rabbit hole, goal, rabbit hole goes. Remember, all I'm offering is the truth, nothing more. The truth is that when we follow God, there will be good times and there will be bad times. The truth is that, 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 the, that the, the life of the believer, the life of a disciple, the life of someone who has chosen to follow Jesus will, will be marked by uh, various different circumstances and situations. And it is a lie that the world has, has sold us to believe that when you come to God, everything about your life is just going to fall into perfect order. When you, when you come into a relationship with God, you are in perfect standing with God the Father. Your eternal destiny is established and set and permanent. But we still live in a broken world. We still live in a world that's under the effects of the curse. And, and we are going to be surrounded by good and bad. And what a lot of us would like to do would be, would, well, just take the blue pill. Can't I just take the blue pill and I just wake up in the morning and everything's all right? I mean, that is, that is how Christianity has been sold to us in our world today. You, Christianity is the blue pill. You take it and you wake up and you can believe whatever you want to believe and it's all good. But it's an unconscious Christianity. It's a lie. So, do you want to be woken up? See, I think, what, I think what's happening is the problem is that we've been swallowing blue pill after blue pill after blue pill, hoping that someday we'll wake up and everything will be like we want it. 
And eventually, if we swallow enough blue pills, one of the pills will work, and, and my life will finally be like I want it to be, and I will finally be happy, right? Like, if I swallow enough blue pills and, and just ignore enough things and, and just finally get things my way, then I'm going to be happy. But there are millions, literally millions of blue pills you can swallow every single one of them promising you happiness and all leaving you wanting more. See, the world is offering us blue pills in the form of stuff and status with the claim that they will make us happy, but all along the way they know that this will not make us happy. This will just make us want want more and we'll be continually dependent on them for more blue pills. But things are actually very different with God. Things are very different with the way God works. See, God does not attempt to draw us in with stuff, only to take it away and leave us dissatisfied. God is not, God is not dropping riches into our lap to try to draw you into a relationship with him. That is not how God works, and, and that is a lie. Instead, God wants to draw you into the most important thing, the thing that is the gift above all other gifts, the thing that that everything else in the entire universe longs for, may not even realize that they're longing for it, but what the whole world is longing for is to be drawn into this one gift, this one present, this one offering, and what he offers to us through his son, Jesus Christ, is himself. It's a relationship with the Father who made us, the the Father who designed us, the Father who had a plan for us and created us with a purpose. And, And what he offers is not all of the stuff, all of the presents, all of the good, all of the gold. What he offers is himself. And this is what eternal life is. It is it is the Father. Eternal life is being with the Father. It's not even heaven with all of the promises of gold and all of the richness that comes with God's glory. That is not eternal life. That's the setting and the context for eternal life in the meantime before God comes back to earth and dwells here. Eternal life is the Father. That is what eternal life is, and this is what God offers us. He's not going to lure us in with treats that might be tricks along the way. What he's going to do is pave the way through his Son. This is significant for us as believers. We need to understand this truth at the pit of who we are so that in all circumstances, good or bad, easy or difficult, pleasing or distressing, we can have joy. Because our joy is not determined by circumstances, our joy is determined by relationships. As long as joy is based on circumstances, we will continually be dissatisfied. We will be dependent and reliant on the circumstances that surround us on a day-by-day basis to have joy. And as long as we are looking for the world around us to provide joy, we will always be dissatisfied because the world cannot give joy. The only thing that can give us joy is by having something determined for us through our Creator. 
And when that relationship is established and we are rooted and established in the love of God our Father, then we can have joy because it's not based on me or my my circumstances or situations. It's based on the fact that I am His and He is mine. I have the ability now to come and sit with the Father and be in relationship. That's what joy is. And these circumstances, these These things that we see as hardships, well, when you look at the life of Paul, we see that they're not really difficulties and trials at all. What they are is that anvil. And God is going about the work of shaping us more and more into the image of his son. And sometimes it takes a lot of work. Sometimes there's some stuff in us that that we're really... We're, we're really holding on to. Sometimes there are things that, that, ha, that have grafted themselves into our lives and, and it's going to take some actual work to cut them out. But because he's a good God and he cannot be bad, when God goes about the work of shaping us on the anvil and shaping us into what he wants us to be, the end result is looking more like his son. This is good. So I have a question to ask us as we start to turn towards a close. Are we wisdom's children or are we spoiled children? Are we wisdom's children? How do we know? How do we know if we're wisdom's children? Well, let's just let's just look at it really quick. Let's just break it down on its simplest form. You know, I've been been really trying to, as I read scripture lately, and I encourage you to do this. Just let scripture speak for itself. You know, let's let let's let the text speak and not try to impose our ideas on it. But what's being said? Wisdom's children. Well, what is a child? A child is someone who resembles their parent, right? I mean, that, that's how we basically understand what a child is, as someone who resembles their parents. And most of us go right to the biological, that, that a, a child looks like their parent. And that's part of it, but that's not all there is to it, because you know and I know children who have been adopted into and fostered into families who start to look like, maybe even in appearance, but certainly in action and in speech, they start to look like their parents, Right? That's what a child is. That's what someone's child is. They start to look and talk and sound like their parents. They act and behave like their parents. That's what a child is. So who are wisdom's children? Well, let's look at this idea of wisdom. Wisdom's children. Wisdom, we discover in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, that Jesus is actually the fullness of wisdom. Jesus is actually the, the visible expression of God's wisdom. One twenty-six in 1 Corinthians, Brothers and sisters, think of what you were when you were called. Not many of you were wise by human standards, so there is a wisdom that the world claims. Not many were influential. Not many were of noble birth. 
But God chose the foolish things of this world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of this world to shame the strong. God chose the lowly things of this world and the despised things and the things that are not to nullify the things that are so that no one may boast before him. It is because of him that you are in Christ Jesus who has become for us wisdom from God. That is our righteousness, holiness, and redemption. So what is wisdom? Well, first, wisdom is Jesus coming from God, and he is our righteousness, holiness, and redemption. Therefore, it is, as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. So what is wisdom? Well, wisdom is God's right. And it's knowing the difference between God's right and the world's right and the world's wrong. And we know this, this makes sense. If something is right, it will be proven right by the results. In other words, the conclusion validates the choice. Another way to say it is a way we've been talking about it for quite some time now is that good trees produce good fruit. If the tree is good, the fruit will be good. Right? If the fruit is good, that must mean that the tree was good. So wisdom will be proved right by all her children. Jesus is the wisdom of God. Jesus will be proved right how? So we prove Jesus right how? What is the way that we prove Jesus right if he is the embodiment of the wisdom of God and we are God's children? Well, we prove Jesus right by the way we live our lives. What Jesus was looking at in the Pharisees and the teachers of the law was, was a spoiled, rotten, petulant little child who was refusing to live according to what God had established. And what Jesus says, without going into great explanation, says, wisdom is proved right by all her children. So we prove Jesus right by the way we live our lives. Question. Is Jesus being vindicated by your life? Some translations say that wisdom is vindicated by her children. Is Jesus being vindicated by the way we live our lives? By the choices that we're making is is the conclusion that the world would see that it's Jesus' wisdom that we're living our life on? Or, or are, we still, are we still letting some of this outside wisdom, this fake wisdom, this foolishness of the world creep into how we're living our lives? And, and what people would see when we live our lives from the outside is not a vindication of Jesus, but a confirmation of our humanity. Is Jesus being vindicated by your life? My hope and my prayer, my desire for all of us here at Six Day Church is that our lives would vindicate Jesus. 
that the way we live, like we talked about last week with John the Baptist going out into the wilderness to prepare the way for the Lord is that the way we live our lives would be as though we are going out into the wilderness. We are going out into the darkness, and we are going out for the purpose of preparing the way for the Lord. And as we go out and we do and live the way that God has given us to live, then we go out into the darkness, into the places that people need to be drawn out of and drawn into God's presence. We go into those places, and we live our lives in a way that vindicates Jesus, not in a way that conforms. It won't be easy. It is not easy. If anything is true, we know that it's going to become more and more difficult. But that doesn't mean we compromise. That doesn't mean we, we, we give in to the pressures of this world. Why? Because we're settled. This world has no effect on us. This world should have no effect on who we are in Christ because we are settled and established in a realm, in a sphere that is outside this world. And so who we are as God's children is not established by what is happening in the world around us, as good or as bad as it may be. We are established by our Heavenly Father. And what he says about us is what matters, not what the world says about us. So even though things may become challenging and difficult, what matters is that we are his and he is mine. And in the darkest of times and in the best of times, we are vindicating Jesus with our lives. Is Jesus vindicated by your life? Let's stand together this morning. As the worship team comes and we turn our hearts to communion, I want to just ask as you bow your heads and close your eyes, I want to ask that question of us, is Jesus vindicated by your life? For some that may be outside the realm of reality because Jesus is not yet your life. And if you're here this morning and you would say, first, I want Jesus to be my life. I want to know that, that I am in relationship with the Father and that what's important about me is what God says about me. I don't want to be basing who I am on my, and my identity on the world's opinions of who I should be. I want to be in Christ. I want to receive his gift. I, I, I admit that there's no way that I can do what God has given me to do. I admit that I have rebelled against God. I have done things my own way. I have been about myself as the center of the universe instead of God as the center of the universe, and I, I need to turn away from that. I need an entire new way of thinking and living. And if you would say, I believe in Jesus and the gift that he has offered me and the gift of salvation that he purchased for me with his death on the cross. And that because of his resurrection from the dead, because he not only died, but that he came back to life, that I believe that he wants to bring me back to a new life in Christ. And that because of that, I, I want to commit my entire life to following him. 
If that's you and you would say, I'm ready to go all in with Jesus, would you just raise your hand? I want to pray for you. Yeah. You can put your hands down. If you're here this morning, you've been a believer for a long time, and you would say, I'm not so sure I've been vindicating Jesus with my life lately. I'm not so sure that the way I've been living my life has been proving that Jesus is who he says he is. If you would say that there's, there's, there's too much of the world in me and not enough of Christ in me. And what you want this morning is, is to just lay that all down, to surrender it all, to, to let go of it all and just say, I'm all his. Who he says I am is who I am and, and circumstantial differences will never change that. So the gaps between who I should be and who I am, God, I want you to help me with those. I want you to help me live my life in a way that vindicates you. If you would say that's you this morning, would you raise your hand? Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, you are a good, good God. You are good and you cannot be bad. You are good and you cannot be evil. You are good. That is who you are. That is who you always have been. That is who you always will be. Father, I thank you for those this morning who have both expressed that they want to be all in with you and receive your gift of forgiveness and those who have said there's too much of a gap. I I haven't been vindicating Jesus with my life. I want to change that. I want God to change that. I pray, Father, for all of us that you would help us to see this isn't going to come about by religious works and religious duties as the Pharisees and teachers of the law would have been teaching their people, but that it's going to come about by a transformation that you want to make in us, that you want to start by transforming us internally. You want to change our hearts and you want to change our minds. You want to transform who we are and, and the motives behind why we live our lives, and then you want to change the actions that we exhibit in our lives. And I pray, Father, as, as we believe, as you have taught and as your resurrection made the way for as you ascended up into heaven and you sent your spirit, that you have empowered each and every one of us here, each and every one of us who believes in Jesus Christ and has received his gift, that you have empowered us with your spirit, enabling us to live a life that we could not live in our own power. And Father, I pray more and more every single day that you would help us every single moment of every single day to, to rely more and more on the power of that Spirit who rose Jesus from the dead to resurrect in us the new life that you have for us, that we may live this life that vindicates Christ. Not by our own power, not by our own might, not by our own strength, and not for our own glory and for our own benefit, but because of the name of Jesus Christ, because we will boast and none other in Christ. I thank you for these truths that you have brought to our attention this morning. Sink them deep into our hearts that we may live our lives by them this week in Jesus' name.